Hi, this is Andrew Brzezanskis, and you're listening to episode 34 of the Okie Bookcast. When I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I had only two things in my mind. Paul Newman and a ride home. Mr. and Mrs. Thursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. It was a bright, cold day in April. And the clocks were striking 13. To the red country and part of the gray country of Oklahoma, the last rains came gently, and they did not cut the scarred earth. Welcome to Chapter 34 of the Okie Bookcast. I'm Jay Hall, and I'm on a mission to connect curious readers like you with your next great read by introducing you to Oklahoma authors and storytellers. Today, I'm looking at storytelling from a bigger perspective as I talk with Andrew Berzanskis, who is an acquisition editor for the University of Oklahoma Press. Andrew has worked in publishing for two decades, during which his work involved acquiring books for the University of Washington Press, West Virginia University Press, and the University of Georgia Press. He got his start in university press publishing through an editorial fellowship at the University of Texas Press. In our conversation, you'll learn about the mission of OU Press and some of the similarities and differences between university presses and the larger commercial publishers. We also talk about the kinds of books featured by OU Press, and Andrew walks through the publication process from acquisition to production, including some incredible advice for authors interested in working with university presses. If you're a regular listener to the bookcast, you're also going to hear some familiar names in our conversation. I'll provide more information about where you can hear more from these past guests after the interview. Please enjoy my conversation with Andrew Brzezanskis. Andrew, thanks for taking some time to sit down with me. Um, you know, we've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of authors from the University of Oklahoma Press, and so I'm excited to get a little bit of a bigger picture from you about the scope of what OU Press does, what academic publishing looks like, and lots of things in that realm. So uh, to get started, let's just talk about that. Tell us a little bit about the University of Oklahoma Press. So the University of Oklahoma Press has been publishing books since the late 1920s. We published our first book in 1929, and so we're going on. We passed 90 years. We're pushing 100 A number of universities across the countries have a press associated with them to help push out their mission to the rest of the world, and we are one of those. And I'm proud to say that we've published something close to 4,000 unique books. We've got over 2,000 books in print right now. And, you know, our, our authors come from all over the world. Our books get trans- have been translated in more dozens of languages. Um, and at this point, as best as, you know, we could do a back-of-the-envelope calculation, we've sold over 15 million books. And that means 15 million books out there on bookshelves across the globe with the name Oklahoma on it. We're really proud of that. That's cool. Talk a little bit. You mentioned lots of universities have these kinds of presses. What's the... What's the role or maybe the goal, we could say it either way, I guess, of, of a university press? So university presses began maybe 100 years ago, give or take. And what happened was at universities, they had faculty who were experts who were writing these amazing books that they couldn't get the big commercial publishers to pick up. Maybe they were writing about Shakespeare. Maybe they were writing about a guide to local lichens or local flora and fauna. And universities realized they they were these great sources of knowledge, but there was more they could do in terms of community outreach to get this great knowledge, these great stories out to people. And so university presses, as we know them now, started roughly 100 years or so, give or take. There are some earlier ones, some later ones. Um, In fact, OU was actually one of the very first, I think it was the first university press in the Southwest. We're one of the founding members of the national organization, the Association of University Presses, which is the National Association. And I'm really proud of that. But the idea was how can the university 
connect its expertise to the rest of the world, whether, whether it's other scholars, whether it's students, whether it's general readers. And over time, that mission has changed somewhat. Um, originally, um, universities under, frankly, they provided a lot of underwriting university presses to, to get their word out. Sure. Um, as times have changed, university presses are incredibly flexible and adaptable and over time have turned into de facto regional publishers. And so the University of Oklahoma Press also publishes books for general readers about the region. But possibly what makes a university press different and distinct, the uh, secret sauce of a university press is peer <laughs> review. And that means any book that we publish has had two experts review it, evaluate it, critique it, and the authors improved in response to that. So any book we publish has a greater degree of credibility um, and it's going to hold up over time. And that's something that we're really proud of. I often tell authors who are going through the peer review process that, you know, think of like the reviews you get after a book is published, the things that are negative, And you're like, oh, I wish I could go back and fix that. I wish I could correct that fact or go visit that archive that I missed. Peer review is a great opportunity for art, for authors to get this kind of feedback before the book is published to make the best possible book. A lot of people might be familiar with the idea of peer review in academic work or nonfiction, you know, kind of fact checking that. But you also publish some fiction. So what does it look like for a fiction author to go through that process? Absolutely. So we do publish fiction. That's not a big part of our list. Right. But we're really proud of, for example, the publishing Rilla Askew's most recent work that we were thrilled that yes. you had her on the show. In a case like that, we look for who are the best kind of experts to evaluate it. In that kind of case, we might go to a fiction writer, we might go to a literary scholar and say, you know, how does this hold up? Can you vouch for its credibility? Is it new? Is it novel? Is it well done? Does a story hold together? It's just a fantastic story, the way that really Askew's novel does, that kind of thing. But again, we want outside experts, and they may be officially academics, but, or they may be a journalist, but they always have some kind of background that speaks especially to being able to evaluate and critique a work. And fiction authors, again, we know that they tend to be a bit of a sensitive lot. I'm not speaking about Rilla in particular, but do you have success with getting them to understand this is not about tearing apart what you've done, but it's about making it the best it can possibly be. Well, I think that for any kind of project going through peer review, whether it's fiction, whether it's a scholarly monograph or a textbook, we're looking for readers who sort of get the goal of the book. And the question is, how well yeah. did the author accomplish that? And I think the idea is that these reports come from a, a position of, we want to help it make it work out. How can we make the best possible book? How can we make you best to help, help you accomplish that vision? That's great. We've talked a little bit about some of the similarities and differences, and, and please expand on that if, if you'd like. But I also am interested in what are some of the unique both challenges and opportunities that you experience uh, in a university press that might be different than traditional publishing? Sure. I think that um, university a, a university press book, you know, I think in the current moment, we live in the age of TikTok, the age of Twitter, where conversations move really fast. And that's a really good thing sometimes, and that's a really bad thing sometimes. Yeah. Working at a university press, things take a while, but that is a core strength, that we're looking for the news that stays news. We're looking for the arguments that stay relevant, that have to be wrestled with for a long time. We're looking for the kind of scholars who have done the kind of research where you say, wow, that is so extensive. Nobody else is going to do this for 50 years. Like This is going to be the work that mm. people are going to be consulting for a long time. And so I think there are, it's hard not to 
be envious sometimes of people who can, you know, just post something on their blog and get the story out immediately like that. So we're at a different pace, but I think that's a strength. That sort of slow cooked book has just so much more value today than even 10 years ago or 20 years ago when I feel like the world is just really hungering for this kind of knowledge. We're going to talk about some specific titles later, but can you think of an example of that? You talk about news that's going to stay news. Uh, has there been something recent that that would be a good exemplar of that? Sure. Um, here's an example that I'll give you of a book that we've published in the past couple of months. And this is a book that you may not immediately think of as being relevant, but give me a minute. I'm going to explain it to you. Sell it. This is a, the author is John Locke. He's a historian. It's a book called The Good Country, A History of the American Midwest, 1800 to 1900. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, my God, a history book about the 19th century. What do we need this for right now? This is a book that has been reviewed in the Washington Post. This is a book that's been reviewed in the Wall Street Journal. This has been reviewed in other places in the past two months because a lot of people are saying we have big questions right now about our democracy. How can we look to history to learn some lessons about how to build a civil society where it all comes together for the best of everybody involved? And what I love about this book is that he centers a region that a lot of people forget about, or maybe the Midwest isn't cool, but he's this beautiful writer. He's done this deep research, but he really brings out these lessons from the way that these states evolved in the 19th century. Um to apply to the present day. And I think that's why it's had such resonance in terms of uh, getting out amongst all these different review outlets, which is really exciting. No, that's great. That's, that's, we don't always think about because it is so, our lives are so immediate. The news is immediate. And it, you know, really interesting, the conversation about the uh, recent uh, vote for Speaker of the House and all of the sudden historical conversation that came on about, well, this hasn't happened in First of all, it was 30 years and then it was 70 years and that, you know, just the, the history of that, that really does have relevance to what happened right now, but we don't always think about those connections. So that's a, a great opportunity to look back and realize we're not as unique as we might think or that we got here for a reason. Something happened to help us become what we've become in this moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to shift and talk about you a little bit. We've talked a lot about OU Press. Uh, you're relatively new there. So tell us a little bit about your role and also just your background and how you got here. Sure. So I have worked in book publishing for about 20 years, give or take. Um, I'm originally from Texas. Um, so Oklahoma, which is, I'm not from Oklahoma originally, but I do feel having grown up on Texas Panhandle, a lot of resonances culturally. Sure. So I'm really excited to be here. Um, I've worked in books for about 20 years. My first publishing job was at the University of Texas Press, and I've worked at a couple of other university presses since then. Um, as editorial director, I'm the head of the acquisitions department. And what that word means, and here I'll address this to my dearly beloved mother and father, I am not a copy editor. <laughs> I can't correct your misspellings. I don't know how the grammar thing works. Um, as an acquisitions editor, acquisitions editors, we go out and find books for the press to publish. We when, if you write an editor to press and say, hey, I've got a book idea, who do I talk to? We're the person you talk to. We help people develop ideas. We help uh, take projects through peer review. And we, you know, we help you know, consult with the rest of the departments along the way about how to make the best possible book. So that's the department that, I, that I'm in. And so what brought you specifically to Oklahoma? Just opportunity or was there something about the, the job at OU Press that you thought, I want to go be a part of that? Sure. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I was working at 
different university press, another great university press. We were at a national park. Maybe it was Grand Tetons. Maybe it was Yellowstone. I don't quite remember. But, you know, obviously when I'm at a national park surrounded by all this spectacular natural beauty, the first thing I do is go look at their bookshop, right? Right. And I'm looking through the, the bookshelves and thinking, you know, where's, where's a book I published? Where's a book I published? Um, because that's what editors do instead of looking at the waterfalls. And my wife says, <laughs> what are all these Oklahoma books doing here? And I realized it was those sort of moments where you say, wow, this is a publisher because I've always been fascinated by the West, the U.S. West, and having grown up in Texas. Um, but the books are the places that I want to be. They're engaged with arguments and discussions mm -hmm. that I want to be a part of. And in a physical way, you know, the kind of books that I read are the kind of things you would buy at a national park bookstore. I mean, or at an indie bookshop. And that's where that's where their books are. And that was one of the things that really appealed to me as a book editor and just, just as a human. Sure. That's great. You've mentioned working for a couple of different university presses. So you've you've had your your hand in this business for a while. We've seen the publishing industry change dramatically in the last, I mean, even couple of years, but certainly over the last couple of decades. Uh, how have you seen the university press industry evolve over that same time? So I'm going to back up just a little bit more to before my first university sure. press job. Great. And when I was an undergrad and after undergrad, I worked as a literary publicist, uh, which means you help get publicity for authors. And when I started this job, which was the late 90s, early 2000s, the number one news story in book publishing was the death of the book review page in major newspapers. Mm. Obviously, the newspapers themselves faced bigger issues in years to come. But, you know, the big newspapers like the Dallas Morning News was letting their book review editor go and shrinking coverage and things like that. And I remember thinking, being very young at the front of my career, is this industry is about to disappear. It's about to be gone. Like I'm here for the last gasp of it. And what's funny is that working in book publishing, it's always supposed to be about to die, yet somehow it never does. <laughs> somehow publishers are still innovating. Somehow writers are still cranking things out. Readers are still demanding new books. And I think um, big picture, you know, I feel like the only constant sometimes is crisis in book publishing. But it's been around for 500 years. And when you think about university presses, um, there are people who like to talk about how university presses are dinosaurs, how, you know, the world is so different now, how relevant are they? And then you, you look at the date of like when they were writing this, it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, are yeah. they going to survive? And I think that university presses rapidly adapt because people want, ultimately want the end result, which is carefully produced knowledge that has enduring value. And that's really exciting to be a part of. You mentioned that you know OU tends to focus on the West. Are there are there areas that different schools kind of I don't know if own is the right word, but but take as as their niche um, and and also just I'm interested. Uh, do different schools take different approaches to the kinds of things that they publish and and the process of it? Sure. Um, actually, let me back up and expand on what OU does. Sure. I would say our, our focus, our driving focus has always been the U.S. West, but also, and just as important, maybe even more important, are Native American and Indigenous studies. Mm. And the press has been a leading publisher in this area for ever since we began. We also publish in other areas. We do publish classics, Latin America, anthropology. But we also also publish books about the region, um, Oklahoma, Texas, and beyond. So most presses do sort of pick an area 
before they start out that's tied to a strength of their university. I mean, a reason that we can thrive doing what we do is OU was so strong and we can work with the history department, the Native American studies department. Um, But if you go to another press, if you go to an NYU press, they're going to have a strong, you know, sociology list. Like they sort of build lists that are related to the university they come from. Do you ever catch yourself hearing a title and then thinking, yeah, that's probably a better fit for a different university or do you just grab it and and go with it? You know, this will sound really callous uh, the first time you hear it, but when somebody sends me a book proposal, it's not uncommon that I know that we're going to reject it within two minutes. Mm. And that's not that I'm callous. It's not that I'm a jerk. It's not that I'm not giving it due attention. It's not the kind of book that OU press publishes. Yeah. I see if somebody sends a proposal and they're like, Hey, I have this investigation into the economics of the 1960s. We don't publish book in economics. I don't know how to evaluate that. Our marketing department doesn't know how to find those readers. So yeah, I often, I'm always happy to refer authors to another publisher that's going to do better. And in fact, usually what I tell authors is, you know, look at your bookshelf, you know, where the books that you read, who publishes those, that's who you want to be talking to, or who's in your bibliography of your manuscript. That's who you want to be talking to, to publish this book. That makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. You mentioned marketing and I want to hang out there for a second because again, we were familiar with what traditional publishing marketing looks like and kind of the blitzes that go on around big titles as they come out. We've seen what's going on with Spare as it's come out this week and everything there. How is marketing for a university press different? Because it seems like the audience is a little bit different. Absolutely. Um, it's been fascinating to watch the rollout for Spare and and that, but I won't go into that right now. Um, <laughs> So one thing is that we have very, we have a very curated sense of who our readership is. Our books are not necessarily for everybody. Sometimes a reader will pitch a book and they'll say, you know, all NPR listeners will want to buy this book. And it's like, oh, come on. That's not, that's not, that's not meaningful to us. Because our question is not only who wants to read it, but who's going to pay for it? Like who will actually pay, right. you know, $24.95 to buy this book? That's very different. But readers tend to like the same things over and over. If you're interested in indigenous studies, you know, we have built over years, built a mailing list of people who buy those books. And so when we publish a book in that area, we know how to find those readers. We have email addresses. We go to the conferences where they go. They know to look to us, to our brand as a reliable choice for those books. You might not want to completely answer this question, but I'm curious what, What's a successful book look like for a university press? I mean, we know that, you know, there are these benchmarks in, I keep saying traditional publishing, and that may be the wrong way to think about it, but there are benchmarks in, in more popular publishing, maybe. What would be considered a, a success, like this book really did well? You know, every book is going to look different. Um, and the reason is that for some books, you just think, well, as many as possible. If it's a really a book for general readers, as many people as possible. Sure. But we also publish book for scholars. And we know that it may be the sales are a lot smaller, but every one of those people who bought that book has a PhD. And every one of the people who is reading that book is going to wrestle with it. And they're going to write an article in response to it. It's going to shape their book. It's going to shape scholarship with ripples you know, down the years through the decades. So it is, there's vastly, every, every book is a different case. So I want to talk about that a little bit because you do, we've talked about some different areas that, that OU Press publishes in, but there's also lots of just different kinds of books. If I can think about, it. we talked about fiction and nonfiction. And uh, so 
give us an idea of the scope of the the kind of of things that you guys publish. So I want to convey that we have a huge range, but I also want to convey we actually have a pretty tight focus. Um, If you go into the press library, which we have at the press, of all the books we've published over the years, I mean, God, there's something, we've done something on everything over the past 90 years. But we really do want to be as focused as possible now because we think, you know, what do people look to us for? Um, And so we really do try to focus on thinking about what plays to our core strengths. Like to give you an example of a book that we're publishing this month, you know, what are the major news stories to have come out of Oklahoma in, in the past few years? It's also a national story is the story of the McGirt decision. Mm, yeah. And we have a book coming out this month. It's called a promise cap, the Muskogee Creek nation and McGirt versus Oklahoma. And this is the kind of analysis written by a law professor. It's written by an anthropologist that gives a deep background on this case that when you think of like, you know, if another book editor saw this manuscript, they'd be like, oh, you should go to OU Press. Like they, they do that to best. So I actually want to say we do have a wild, a big range, but we're also very careful to have a clear focus that people know what to look to us for. For, we have lots of authors that listen, uh, and you've mentioned that you're an acquisitions editor. Talk a little bit about what that process looks like. So you've mentioned getting an email or a phone call, um, but as an editor, What's the acquisition and decision-making process for books that that ultimately get printed by OU Press? So before I worked in publishing, and I imagine what life was like as an editor, I saw myself sitting at a desk surrounded by stacks of manuscripts, and you know, by some divine insight that I had that nobody else had, I would point at one and say, "This one, this one's it." And I thought that's what working in publishing was, and that's completely wrong acquisitions editors are incredibly proactive. And if there's Mm. a good project out there, we're not the only editor that knows it. All the editors at all the other presses we compete with know that too. And so acquisitions editors actually spend a lot of time doing outreach, hustling, being out in the community, trying to connect with authors to compete for the best possible books. Um, I will say there's a couple of different ways that we try to bring books in. The first is that all of our editors are really active at scholarly conferences. Anytime there's a you know Western History Association meet, Western History Association meeting, we're there. We're going. We're trying to find out who's doing new and interesting work. We actively reach out to people if we see you know a journalist who's done an interesting series of articles where we shoot them an email and say that's fascinating. You ever thought about turning it into a book and the journalist will say, hey, I've actually got all these notebooks of notes I've been taking that I can't squeeze into the newspaper. Yes, let's write a book. Um, we have a number of series editors who are subject matter experts at the press who help us. We have a, like a, our book series, Campaigns and Commanders, is edited by a very famous, a very noted uh, historian, war historian, hmm. a, a historian of military history. And we have experts like that who help us find books. And last, but certainly not least, we have a portal, a proposal portal on our website, where if you have a book idea, it walks you through a couple of the basic questions we need to know. And that's how you can, that's how you can pitch an idea to us. We've talked a lot about the, the different kinds of books that you're looking for. If an emerging author is listening and they're thinking, okay, this sounds like me. This sounds like the kind of projects I'm interested in, the kinds of things I'm wanting to do. What would what advice would you have for them in terms of maybe putting together a proposal or a pitch? Uh, what what should that look like? 
I think the first thing, if you're a potential author, is to do a little research on the press and see how your book fits in. Some of the strongest pitches we get are when they point to particular books that we have published in the past three or four years and say, I love this book. My book has a lot in common with it. Mm, yeah. Here's the idea. Because that way you know that we're interested in those kinds of things. And oftentimes, if you're an author, you want to publish at a, with a press where your work is in conversation with their books. So I would say that is absolutely where to start. One of the things that we're hearing a ton in uh, the larger presses is that uh, authors are having a hard time getting agents or having a hard time getting published unless they have massive social media followings. What's the philosophy of that for a press like yours? Well, absolutely. It does help if you have some kind of social media outreach. I would say in 2023, there's a lot of things that we the publisher as an institution can do to promote your book. But what readers want right now is something different. They don't want to read a press release written by a publicist necessarily. They want right. to hear from the author themselves. So I absolutely do think it makes a difference to have some kind of outreach like that. But every book is different and sure. it depends on the kind of book you're doing. And if you are a, you know, if you're writing an undergraduate textbook that you want to pitch to us. It's going to be a different conversation than if you're writing a book for a general readership. Sure. No, that makes perfect sense. Talk a little bit about just the process from, you know, once uh, you guys have decided we want to pursue a project, what is that acceptance to uh, submission to publication? Obviously, I know there's lots of moving parts there, but give us just kind of a quick idea of what that looks like for you. Sure. The process always starts out with a book proposal and a sample chapter. Book proposal may be seven or eight pages. It's not long. It's a bird's eye view of what the book's going to be. We'd also like a writing sample, maybe 10,000 words, where we have a sense about what the final manuscript is going to look like. An editor will look at that then. If they're interested, they'll pitch it in-house. And if we all like it, we'll say, let's get some expert feedback. And we'll send it to two experts in the field and say, hey, is this, is this as good as we think it is? Because we're not always the subject matter experts. If we do think it's good, if we get great reports back and we move forward, um, we'll go under contract then. But even then, the, the full book manuscript will go through peer review once it shows up. And then the total, the book publication process, which is, you know, we pass it off to a copy editor, you know, marketing wheels start turning. It takes about 10 to 12 months to get a book out. So it's slow. But again, we're looking for the news that stays news. Do you print in-house or do you foster that out? Um, all printing is done. That's all outside. All right, so it's time to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk final questions. Hope you're ready for these. Uh, first question is this, Andrew, what's a genre that you love to read? You've mentioned a little bit. Uh, and give us some uh, recommendations for authors or titles. All right, I'm boldly going to bring Coles to Newcastle. And I have been reading Oklahoma books nonstop since I arrived. And I, I you know, I've read some of the big names like Brandon Hobson, Joy Harjo, Sonora Bab. I want to highlight a couple of Oklahoma books that I've really enjoyed and resonated with me. This is the place for that. So first of all, here's a self-published novel I picked up at the record shop in Norman. It's called Way I See It by Wampus Reynolds. It's a, it's a, uh, a guy, his best friend dies mysteriously, and the book is about his trying to solve this murder. Um, what I love about it, it's a page turner because of the, you know, solving the murder mystery, but it's this great um, meditation on friendship and how friendships fall apart and how these bonds last even after 
a friendship ends. But also I like it because it's this great pop ethnography of a college town. I mean, it's about Norman cool. and it ranges from, you know, life at the towny bars to the mega churches. And it gives you this great sense of place. And I really respond to that in fiction where you have a mm. sense about why this place is different from that place. So absolutely recommend way I see it by Wampus Reynolds. Um, here is another, here's a short story collection that maybe I came across from, the Oki book cast. It's called Pecola stories by Amanda oh, yeah. Bales. Um, I really like the kind of short stories that focus on people that other people overlook and find a lot of social, emotional complexity in a place that's just been that other people don't pay enough attention to. And these characters really stick with you. Um, have an OU book to talk about. This is an OU book from the 1990s. Um, it's called Garth Brooks, The Road Out of Santa Fe. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this book, it's a memoir written by the drummer in Garth Brooks' bar band oh, wow. before he was famous. And what I love about this is obviously you pick it up because you get this portrait of the international super, superstar when he was just this local dude who had big dreams. Yeah. But if you're into Red Dirt music, it, it's this great portrait loving portrait of the music scene in Stillwater and all these country dance halls in a certain place and time, you get a sense of the music and the people who were there and loved it, but it's a really fun book and I absolutely recommend it. That's great. And uh, for those of you who are uh, regular listeners, Amanda Bales and uh, uh, Chris Murphy were on, I'm not going to remember the exact episode, but last summer, and we'll be sure and link in the show notes so you can uh, listen to Amanda talk about Pecola stories for sure. And then also Chris talk about his work, but totally agree with you, Andrew. I loved that book and I love the way that she tells the stories of those people that we largely don't even know exist. And if we do think about them, it's, it's not, uh, it's not very often or, or for very much. So uh, those are great. Second question then, what's an early experience that shaped your reading life? This is, these stories are so embarrassing. <laughs> I have to tell them. Um, the first one is that when I was in seventh grade, my family in the small town in Texas I was growing up in was named the Library Family of the Year. Had our photograph in the newspaper. And I said to myself, reading, so the path to glory and fame. <laughs> um, one summer in middle school, I don't remember when, I kept track of how many, I wrote down the number of pages I read, every book I read. And um, over the summer, in my memory, I could be wrong. It was I read over 10,000 pages that summer. And obviously, you're a kid, you got nothing else to do. Maybe it was 5,000, I don't remember. I remember some adult exclaiming over it, and I thought, maybe I'm good at this. Maybe this is where I should be, is reading. <laughs> this is what I have is special. That's great. And not terribly embarrassing. There was, and I, again, my memory is failing me, but a recent conversation with an author who did something very similar, except it was books. And the the goal was to always beat the next or the last year's number of books that they read. So you're in good company there. Last question then, if you could have a meal with one character from fiction, who would it be and what would you talk about? All right. So I'm going to give you one character from Oklahoma history. Um and that would be Woody Guthrie. And I think that if I went to a restaurant with Woody Guthrie, I think he would lose interest in me in about 60 seconds. <laughs> but he would be talking to the dishwashers, smoking cigarettes in the alleyway. He'd be talking to the people at the bar. He'd be talking to the people in the booths. And his gift was finding stories where yeah. nobody else looked. And 
I would love to see him in action doing that. That's very, that's a great answer. Very Oklahoma focused. So I appreciate that. You've, you've got the vibe of what we're doing here. Before we go, tell us a little bit about, you mentioned the, the McGirt book. Are there other things on the horizon for OU Press that you're excited about that you want to make sure we know about? Um, so one thing that's coming up that's big, that's not a book in particular, but there is a partnership between the pro- between OU Press, between the Native Nations Center on the OU campus to start a Native Nations imprint. Oh, cool. um, these are books that will be done in, in cooperation, perhaps with the tribes. This is all in the brainstorming phase. Sure. There's stuff under the hood I can't share yet, but that's something that I'm really excited about. That's great. How can people find OU Press? How can they find you? Give us websites and social media and all those things. Absolutely. So the press is online at OUPress.com. Um, also, at your better bookstores, you want to go to Literati Press, you want to go to Magic City Books, you want to go to Full Circle. Um, they very kindly stuck many of our books, and yeah. I genuinely appreciate that. I'm on Twitter at Abrazanskis. Um, Please do follow me. I'd love to meet people that way. And we'll make sure and link all that so that you're not having to figure out how to spell Brzezanskis correctly uh, and, and everything else. Andrew, it has been great to meet and talk with you. This is a, a fascinating world uh, and just different enough from what we you know, traditionally know or think about in publishing that it really is. Uh, it's just cool. And we can be proud right here in Oklahoma that there is such a great example of publishing in general, but also specifically university and, and scholarly press. So uh, thanks for the work. And, and thanks for the time. It's been great getting to know you. Thank you, Jay. Quick note that the conversation with Amanda Bales and Christopher Murphy was in Chapter 22 of the show. We have a great time talking about short fiction as it connects to Oklahoma, and I highly recommend both Amanda's and Chris's books. I've had the privilege of sitting down with at least three authors who've worked with OU Press. Dr. Carlos Cahill, who I talked to about his photographic history of the Tulsa Race Massacre back in Chapter 18. Dr. Michael Hightower, who I talked to with Bill Price in Chapter 21 about Hightower's biography of Price, called at War with Corruption, and most recently, Rilla Askew, who I talked with in Chapter 30 about her novel, Prize for the Fire, which is going to be the focus of this episode's review. I'm going to do something a little different with the review this time. The first voice you'll hear will be Rilla talking about her book from our conversation in Chapter 30, and then you'll hear me talking about it from the November edition of Your Next Great Read. It's historical fiction, but it's biographical historical fiction. So it's about a real person, a woman whose name was Anne Askew. She was burned at the stake in 1546 in the last year of Henry VIII's reign. She was burned as a heretic. I will say that the book, Prize for the Fire, um, we know that 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 is what her ending is, but the book is not about the ending. The book is not about what happened to her. It's about her young life. It's about, it's what we don't really know. And so I've tried to give her voice and life and vitality from her youth. She was married off at 15 against her will, an arranged marriage. And that's where the book lies and her independence, her uh, resistance to the Tudor patriarchy, her insistence that she be able to uh, think and believe the way that she wanted to. That's much what the story is about what her Anne story is about, but it's also what the novel is about. You're talking earlier about liking, you know, historical fiction with strong women who also find themselves in difficult situations. And I think this really fits that, that she is powerful, she's strong, but she's in a culture where she's really powerless. She's kind of operating at the whim of 
the men in her life, her husband and her brothers and some other people, but also the religious and political establishment who change their minds about what's okay in terms of religion kind of on whims, just based on whichever way the wind's blowing. And so she she finds herself caught up in a lot of that. So everything about the book is as historically accurate as it can be. All the characters are actual people who lived uh, as much as we know about what Anne uh, actually did and said and, and how she lived, and how she died is all there. But Rilla does a fantastic job of constructing the rest while also making it feel very real to the time, but also really accessible for us. So the language is very accessible, but at the same time, uh, the idioms and the the some of the language that's used is appropriate to 16th century England. So it's a great mix of the two. It's really well written. It's really interesting. It moves very quickly. It it gives you a real sense, not just of her life, but of the time and the climate and the things that she was dealing with. That's it for chapter 34 of the Okie Bookcast. My thanks to Andrew Brzezanskis for being a part of the conversation. Remember to connect with me across social media at Okie Bookcast and to head over to okiebookcast.com where you can subscribe to the Bookcast newsletter and check out the latest volume of Behind the Rain, our audio anthology of Oklahoma poetry. Hannah and I will be back next week for the January edition of Your Next Great Read with a special guest you are going to love. Until then, go find something good to read.